Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Good morning, church family. $13,000. Like, isn't that just fun to say? Um, Alex mentioned uh, some of the exterior doors that we need to change for fire code, and Lord willing, we're going to get to do that. That'll likely be a board-approved expenditure out of our bank balance. But for the property development, we earmarked the uh, generator over here that we need to put in for the warming center, and that's going to come in January. So that when the power is out or when there's a hurricane or a flood or whatever the case might be, Lord willing, because of that generator, we're going to have power here in the facility. We'll be able to offer people warm meals, a place to charge their phone, to come, to get out of the cold weather. So that's, that's going to be awesome. And that's a huge way to bless our community. And that's what this offering is all about. So praise God. Thank you for your generosity. Yesterday, uh, the men's event. I've never been to a men's event like that before in my entire life. Um... There wasn't really a good video of that go-kart there. Uh, here's, that's how my day ended yesterday. And I didn't see any other low-budget custom builds out there to compete with. So, guys, this is your challenge. I'm going to have to replace that uh, axle. It's 40 bucks at Princess Auto. That's probably why it broke. But get an old lawnmower. Soup it up. You got a whole year. Set it up in your garage. That's just an old snowblower engine I got for 50 bucks in a yard sale. You should build something and we can compete next year, okay? Sound good? All right. (laughs) Write it down. Uh, The title today is Church and Family, Cooperation or Competition. Let me tell you a little bit about me. I'm a pastor's kid. And I have been my whole life. Maybe that helps you understand a little bit. I grew up in the church. Career day was going to the Baptist church in Moncton with my dad and racing my remote control car in the gymnasium because my dad was the pastor at the church. I was baptized in the church at eight years old. I went to Sunday school. My teacher's name was Leila. And when she sang the song, Only a Boy Named David, and did the the spinny thing, and then you're supposed to spin around. She would spin around, she would roll on the floor. I thought she was an old lady then, and I thought that was so cool that she would do that, spin and roll on the floor. I remember junior church where my leader, Roxanne, brought me up to the piano because I was a little socially anxious kid who was pretty shy and refused to sing. So she said, you're going to stand next to the piano when we do music today. And I learned some lessons that day. (laughs) Don't let your leader catch you not singing. I went to the Iwana program. My leader's name was Ryan, Ryan Sori. He had a shark tooth necklace, and I thought he was super cool, and I couldn't wait to get to the Iwana program to be with my leader, Ryan. My other leader was a teenage guy named Nathan, and I found Nathan really confusing because he could have had a career in sports. He was this incredible collegiate athletic swimmer, and he gave up swimming to go to the mission field in Ethiopia, and that's where he is today. Couldn't, I couldn't um, wrap my mind around that as a kid. Um, I was just a few years old when I had my first lines in the Christmas pageant. And they were this. I still remember them. The angels blew their horns. <laughs> Are you impressed? 
Um, my parents, <laughs> my parents had a backyard Bible club at my house in the summer, and I invited. I invited um, the neighborhood kids to come. Oh, this is going to be a long sermon. I'm sorry. <sighs> I drove in the church van with my dad to pick up kids in the neighborhood to take them to kids' events at the church. I remember sitting in men's prayer meeting in a circle on a Wednesday evening, a bunch of guys that I kind of knew but I didn't really know. I sit next to my dad. And uh, then they started praying around the circle. And I had a big gulp when I realized that, you know, the prayer chain was getting to me and it was going to be my turn to pray. And I... I remember I prayed out loud in front of those men for the first time in my life. And I thought I was going to die. It was... That was stepping out at that age. Um, as I got older, I helped with vacation Bible school. I attended youth group. I got to see some of my middle school friends get connected and come to know Jesus. Because my youth pastor took the time to be involved, to coach basketball, to be present in my school. I went on missions trips with the church. I got to see poverty in the Dominican Republic and helped to build a bathroom facility for a Christian school down there. I got to go to see the, the homeless and the impoverished in the Bronx, New York City. Jeff McLean and Bruce Steves were two youth pastors who played basketball with me and went mountain biking with me and pushed me to pursue Jesus. I learned to play the guitar in school, in, uh, in church. I, I learned to function socially in church. I learned to public speak because my church family encouraged me to do so and had grace for me when I was terrible up on stage. I, I learned to respect older generations. I learned the truth of God's word and what it is to have a relationship with Jesus all through the local church. My best friends that I've had in my life have been connections that I've made through faithfulness to the local church. I cannot separate the incredible impact of growing up in a Christian family that raised me. I cannot separate that impact from the impact and the development of my life from growing up in the local church. I just can't do it. They're one in the same to me in, in my experience. I can't separate the two. I can't differentiate between the two. That was my experience. But here's another experience. Um, at my previous church, I was asked to do a ministry audit as part of a conversation on moving to multiple Sunday services. What would it take? Uh, we determined the big cost, the big sacrifice was busyness and schedules, volunteer schedules, maybe the same volunteers serving double, or now you need to double the volunteer teams. We went through that whole conversation. As part of that, 
I had to list out all of the volunteer positions when it comes to a weekend service at the church. And then also I got to interview some of those volunteers on their thoughts on what it was to volunteer in the church. I'll never forget sitting with an older couple at Tim Hortons, discussing their volunteer roles in the church. I can still remember where I was sitting in the restaurant, where they were sitting. This couple in their 70s served in six separate ministries in the church consistently. Only one out of those six didn't happen on a weekly basis. They were serving in five different ministries on a weekly basis, and one of them was monthly. They were the top volunteering volunteers in the church. They served the most out of anybody else that we could identify, and it was this older couple in their 70s. As we sipped on our Tim Hortons coffee, they confessed to me with tears running down their eyes that they had chosen ministry in the church over discipling their own children. They even mentioned being so busy in church programs, but never having established a dedicated Bible reading habit. They hadn't read through the Bible for themselves. And they'd been Christians for decades. They'd been in the church for decades. Their family's health, their own spiritual health had been suffering for years. And they believed it was because they were doing too much in the church. And they were probably doing too much in the church. Do you get that tension? I get that tension. I get that tension all too well. I struggled through that tension. I want you to know that this sermon today is being preached from the struggle. <laughs> I don't have this figured out. In fact, most every sermon I get to preach, I don't have everything figured out for myself. And that's not why I'm up on the stage to preach the sermon. I am struggling through this as you're struggling through this. Life's full of these tensions between things that we deem to be important, isn't it? We often use the term balance to describe the tension in our family schedules these days. Is there a tension between your family and your church when it comes to time and energy and resources? There are some who would say balance is the wrong focus. Kerry Newhoff is an author, he's been a pastor, he's a podcaster, he's a well-known name in the church world. He writes this about balance. I think in many circles in our culture, balance has become a synonym for mediocrity. Don't work too hard, don't be intentional about your time, just be balanced. Here's what I've seen. Most of the people I know who have accomplished significant things are not balanced people. They are passionate people. Could you call the Apostle Paul a balanced person? Sure, he spent time with friends and churches and built solid relationships, but he was far more passionate than he was balanced. Great things are rarely accomplished by balanced people. They're accomplished by passionate people who attack almost everything they do with some zeal. Does that frustrate you? Maybe you hear passion, 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 accomplishing great things, and your mind just goes click. I don't have time for that. <laughs> I'm just trying to survive, just trying to get through the schedule, 
just trying to get through the kids through school and pay for groceries and get them on the table. I don't, I, I don't really expect to do great things through my life. Maybe passionate people frustrate you. Maybe cynicism, maybe it's exhaustion. Maybe passionate people frustrate you because they are unbalanced, because they're excited, because they're passionately fixated on just a few priorities in life. We've all met people who are passionate about serving in the church. We've probably had conversations with people who serve because it's tradition or it's obligation or who else is going to do it? We've met people who are passionately engaged in their families, and we've met people who are so focused on other ambitions, their family is left wanting. That's the tension we're talking about. So what do we do about this? Let's look to scripture. 1 Timothy 3. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the passage that we're going to be digging into, 1 Timothy chapter 3. He wrote to a young leader in the church who needed some direction on these very tensions. Timothy was probably stressed out as a young pastor. Paul says that he was frequently sick. Paul says he had to battle false teaching in the church. People thought he was too young. He shouldn't be in the role that he was in. I love it when I say hi to people and greet people for the first time. So are you like, you know, are you the junior pastor? I've had that term used. Well, actually, I'm, I'm the lead pastor of the church. What? You? How old are you? I'm appreciating that more and more as the years go on, let me tell you. Yeah, you're right. I'm too young. Tell me again. Tell me again. <laughs> Timothy was a young leader. Paul ends the letter by referring to ministry as fighting the good fight. It's a fight. He also calls it waging war. Those are bold terms, aren't they? Stress-inducing terms. But there's something interesting tucked into each chapter of this first letter to Timothy, this young pastor. Paul's instructing a pastor in the church, but every chapter is marked by family. Chapter 1, uh, family members, family roles, family values. He even talks about people's family at home and at the church. Paul greets Timothy in chapter 1 as his child in the faith two times. He also talks about mothers and fathers. Chapter 2, Paul talks about the roles of men and women in the church, and he mentions childbearing. We're going to dig into chapter 3. Chapter 5 and verse 1 and 2, here's what it says. Let me read it for you. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as as sisters in all purity, we're supposed to treat each other in the church like family. So let's really dive into 1 Timothy 3. These are the qualifications that Paul outlines for leaders in the church, the elders and the deacons. When you're recruiting for an organization, you probably want to be sure that the candidate exemplifies the qualities and the values that you want to see in your organization, right? That makes sense. So if your organization is meant to be family-oriented, it would make sense to get a candidate who's also family-oriented and sees that as a quality and a value. That's what we're going to look at. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. 
If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that could be translated church leader, bishop, elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. It's probably important that the elder in the church has a decent reputation in the community, right? He probably shouldn't be known as a swindler or a cheater or a liar. Probably wouldn't help the ministry. (laughs) I had a friend who bought tires on rims on Kijiji from a guy in another community who turned out to be a pastor of a church. And this is in New Brunswick. So he traveled to pick up the tires, made the payment. And on the drive home, he could hear a whistling sound. By the time he got home, two of the tires were flat. The next day, all of the tires were flat. So he figures that pastor pumped up the tires just in time for him to come and pay the bill and pick up four flat tires for his vehicle. And he ended up having to throw them out. That's a great reputation to have as a pastor, isn't it? Come on over to my church. Hey, aren't you the guy that sold me those tires? Yep. Um, Verse two, the rest of verse two, it says here, the, the husband of one wife. Now this is interesting. In light of today's discussion, the second quality listed for an elder is that they are faithful in their marriage. If an elder is married, it should be a faithful husband and wife relationship. It's really simple in the original Greek language. It is a one woman man. Literally, that's what it is. A one wife husband faithfulness in marriage. Why is a healthy marriage relationship important for leading the church? The first thing that comes to mind is that marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. And the husband ought to lay down his life as Christ laid down his life for the church and died for her. That's the picture. The church is the bride of Christ. Marriage is a picture of Jesus And his church, marriage is a qualification of eldership, a healthy marriage, a faithful marriage. Look at the rest of verse 2 and beyond. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. That's interesting. Hospitality, kindness to strangers, opening your home, able to teach. Verse 3, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, Then look at verse 4. Let's spend some time thinking about this. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? How many other jobs do you think when you're in the interview process and uh, your future potential boss or manager are asking you questions, how how many jobs would ask, are you married? Okay, you're married. Tell me about your marriage. How is it, would you say? What would you rate it on a scale of one to 10? Are you in a healthy relationship? Do you communicate with your spouse? Is there anything that you need to get off your chest? Oh, you're a parent. Well, tell me about that. Are you a good mom who cares for your children, who raises your children right and disciplines them? Tell me about that. Does that come up a whole lot in the interview process? Or is it questions more like, can you work evenings and weekends? That's probably more so the case, isn't it? The leaders, the elders in the church must manage their own household well. Manage. I'm not a huge fan of that translated term. The original language is prohistemi. It means to stand 
before. To be a father who takes a stand, that's quality, character, values. A father who takes a stand before, out in front, paving the way, leading, leading by example. Practicing diligently the qualities of a father who leads his family well. It's also defined as a father who gives time and attention to his family, a father who is present. A leader in the church should not be one who neglects his family. Look at verse 4 again. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Submissive children. (laughs) The Greek term is hupotasso. It means to arrange under, to organize under authority, disciplined, obedient. This isn't just like militant slavery. It's submission with dignity. It specifically emphasizes dignity. Children who respect and honor their father as shown by obedience. It's interesting reading these qualifications and preaching them as as an elder in the church. Because I know my kids. I know my kids like you don't know my kids. (laughs) You see them on a Sunday. I see them every other day of the week. And it's not always hoopo tasso. (laughs) Sometimes it's more like jumping through hoops. and, And I know my marriage. And I would not be ignorant enough to stand up here and say, I've got a perfect marriage. Even though my wife is in Journey Kids and she won't hear that. I want you to know that I'm speaking from the struggle. And some of these tensions, all of these, you you relate to and you resonate with. We need to have grace for one another in the church. Verse 5. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Do you see the implication here? The church isn't a business. It's not a community center with engaging programs to keep people active or social or to keep the youth off the streets. The church is a family. The church is to be led like a father leading his family, like a husband who's faithful to his wife. If we're not leading at home, then we shouldn't be leading in the church. There's a lot of other jobs you can do that don't require a good relationship with your family. You can sell product and work retail. They're not going to care about your home life as long as you show up for your shift on Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. That's not how the church is to work. Church is a family. Paul talks about the qualifications of deacons with Timothy next. 1 Timothy 3, the term deacon is the Greek word meaning servant, somebody who waits tables, somebody who serves tables, leaders who focus on the physical needs of the church, whereas the elders are the ones who focus on the spiritual needs of the church. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 8, deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, 
but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you this. If a healthy home life is one of the key qualifications that's repeated over and over again in various ways when it comes to marriage and children and managing your household for both elders and deacons, if home life is a key qualification for leaders in the church, doesn't that say something about the type of community that the church should be? The church should be a family. We're not a business. We're not a franchise with office hours Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Show up early and get your seat. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're adopted sons and daughters of God. We have a heavenly father who desires to be with us so much that he's willing to sacrifice his own son to be the redemptive payment to buy us back from our brokenness and sin and into his everlasting kingdom. He's calling us home. He's got a room ready for us. He's got a seat ready for us. Supper's ready. And someday, because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we're going to be invited to the Father's house to sit at his table where he's got a room ready for us. Church is family. This is why we can't make the discussion about competing schedules and obligations. It's not family against church. Who's going to lose? Who's going to win? The reality is whatever family you represent here today, on a much grander, more eternal scale, you are representing the family of God because of your faith in Jesus Christ. That is your first allegiance. And that's your first identity. No matter what family you come from today, no matter what the last name is that's written on your birth certificate, you are first to be known as a Christian, a little Christ. Somebody who Jesus died to save, somebody who God the Father adopted into his family, who has the very presence of the Spirit of God marked in their life. That's your first allegiance. That's your first identity. Whatever blood relatives you have here and now, the reality is through the shed blood of Jesus, you have brothers and sisters in the blood of Christ around the globe through time and eternity right now today. Remember, James says this life is but a vapor. Paul says this light and momentary present affliction. This life is short. Francis Chan has this illustration he's used of this long rope. And on the rope, there's just this little piece of tape. And he says, this little piece of tape is your life here on this earth. And the rest of this rope is all of eternity past, all of eternity future. You have so much more life ahead of you than this little vapor that vanishes away. So how should we be living as families in the church in light of eternity. The Sadducees asked Jesus this crazy question about life after death and the resurrection because they didn't, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They wanted to prove Jesus wrong. So they pulled Jesus aside and they say, Jesus, there's this woman married to this man and he dies. 
So she marries another man and he dies. And then another man and he dies. And then another and he dies and another and he dies. And it goes on and on. And then Jesus' response is, okay, first of all, that's a ridiculous question. Secondly, don't you know what the scriptures say? People aren't married or given in marriage in heaven, but they're like the angels of heaven. Why are we not married in heaven? What will our family units that we have right here and right now who share our last name and our address and our schedule and drove in with us and sat with us in the road today, what will that look like when we get to heaven? Parenting is just a flawed temporary picture of our heavenly father's love for his children whom he adopted. Marriage is just a flawed temporary picture of the eternal relationship between Christ and his church. These things are going to last for all of eternity. This family that we have right here and right now that share our last name and our address are a temporary blessing from the hand of God that point to a much greater eternal reality in the kingdom of God. The local church is just a small taste of that heavenly reality. We're flawed and we're broken and we're people who battle sin, but we're just a small taste of that heavenly reality. When we welcome one another, when we pray for one another, when we worship together, when we gather on a Sunday to set our mind and our heart and our focus on Jesus Christ, it's a small taste of heaven. I'm guessing most of us know this. But it seems impractical when you got to pick the kids up from school, get them home, get them fed, get them to sports, get them music, get them back home, homework, get them to bed, and then get yourself to bed so you can wake up tomorrow and do it all over again. It seems a little impractical to be thinking about the picture that our families, parenting, marriage is of eternity. How do I practically keep eternity in mind when I'm going through the day-to-day mediocrity of the schedule that we're in? With the fear of having this received as a bit of a rant from the pastor, let's consider Jesus' own words to his disciples right before he sends them out on their missionary journey. Matthew chapter 10, if you would turn there, starting in verse 34. Matthew 10, 34, we're going to start winding down with Jesus' thoughts right here. Jesus says to his disciples, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. But I thought Jesus was the Prince of Peace. I thought he was Emmanuel, God with us. I thought peace was one of the things we talked about Christmas time, and that's why Jesus came. But here Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I've not come to being peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, that that one shouldn't be too hard, should it? (laughs) Verse 36. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake 
will find it. And that's all the time we have. Uh, hope you have a great week. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, but actually I'm kind of not. I need you to dig through this for yourself. And that's not a cop-out. We are going to talk about it. But your answer to this question from Jesus needs to be your answer. It cannot be, well, Pastor Josh said the other Sunday, that's not going to work. You need to dig into this. This is one of the questions in the discussion guide. It's available in the lobby. Your life group leaders have it. Can I encourage you? Would you grab that? Read through this passage over again. Discuss it. Maybe at supper tonight, you could sit down with your family and say, what do you think about these difficult passages from Jesus? Did you realize Jesus said this? Let's talk about that. Jesus is talking about priorities, isn't he? It's not about balance. It's about which comes first because something has to come first in your life. Do you realize that? In our modern society, we think we can do it all at once. We want our cake and we want to eat it too. And then life hits us hard and we realize, whoa, we only have so much energy, so much time, so much relational social capacity. We can't be everything to all people, so what are we going to be? It's a conversation on priority. Who or what do you love the most? The struggle we have with this passage is that it's our family in the blank. You see, we have no problem. You, you guys have no problem saying amen to this statement. Jesus, I love you more than anything. Would you say that? Didn't, didn't we sing that? That final song started out, I love you, Lord. Right? Your mercy is running after me. That first song, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son. Thank you, God. We give all the praise to you. We just sang that, didn't we? Jesus, we're here for you and we're here for you alone. Jesus, I love you more than anything. And we would say amen to that, would we not? But then what if Jesus put something in the blank? Do you love me more than your spouse? What if Jesus asked you, do you love me more than your kids? Do you love me more than your parents? Do you love me more than that thing that popped into your head when Pastor Josh started talking about this that might sit on the throne of your heart that you know, uh-oh, that's kind of gotten in the way and interfered with my allegiance to Jesus Christ? What do we do with this? When Jesus says, do you love me more than family? How do we reconcile those words? Doesn't that poke at the tension we feel in our hearts when we discuss our families and church family? Sometimes they seem like competing priorities, don't they? Does it mean we need to sacrifice one for the sake of the other? Can only one win here? Is that where this ends? Let me tell you, I think about this a lot. As I'm going over my notes for this this morning, the kids run into the room that I'm in. Good morning, Daddy. They want to give me a hug. My wife made toast and eggs for me this morning, which was an awesome blessing. She's a great woman. They want to tell me what they've been reading and the craft that my daughter's been working on. My son made this, uh, this promotional poster for his dog, 
whose name is Roos, my son's name is Reese, his dog's name is Roos, his stuffed animal, uh, he's going to have a sleepover. And here's where all the information can be found. And if you need to know more, you can text Reese at, and then he's got like 20 numbers in a row, text him in that number. So they come running into the room and they want to show me all this. And I've got to say, thank you for the breakfast, but daddy's working on his message right now and needs to be ready to speak this to our church family. So you're going to have to step out. I struggle with that. I find that really hard. A lot of us come right to this point in the conversation. You know what my daughter said the other night? She said, she referenced something specific, and I forgot what it was, but she said, Daddy, do you think before you leave tonight, we could do something fun that she had in mind? The worst part of that was that I didn't have to go anywhere that night. She just assumed that I did. In her little six-year-old mind, I know this fall's been busy, and she's paid attention to that. And the way she phrased that, Daddy, before you leave tonight, assuming that I had a meeting to be at or some sort of church program to go to, and that broke my heart. Do you feel that tension? A lot of us come right to this point and our resolution is, I should probably just step back from my responsibilities, take some time off. I guess I probably shouldn't attend on Sunday or serve in church ministry as much because well, obviously it's hurting my family. We chat with our spouse and we decide, you know what, let's just take next Sunday off. We're just exhausted. We just need some family time. Let's cut back on church so that we can value family. I don't mean to generalize. I don't mean to make a blanket statement. And let me reiterate, I struggle with this stuff too. But I would push back and ask, why? Why do you feel the way you feel? What are we really communicating to our family when we make a decision like that? I don't know your situation, but I'm assuming church and family are not the only priorities in your world. I know you're busy because I know how busy my family is this fall. I know there's work, there's extended family, there's local community, neighbors, coworkers, classmates, sports, music, extracurriculars, finances, hobbies, home renovations, work to be done around your property before the snow flies, groceries to pick up, medical appointments you've been waiting for for months, payments to be made. Last week I talked about affluence and affluence provides us with so many opportunities and we fill our schedule full of stuff that we deem to be necessary and realize we've bitten off more than we can chew. Is church the only factor contributing to the stress and exhaustion in our families these days? 
Is this a church problem? Or could it be an overscheduled, overly committed issue? I might step on some toes here, so forgive me. And remember, I'm speaking out of the struggle. I'm trying to figure this out for myself. Would we consider skipping practice before skipping church? Would we consider dropping a dream project on our property before dropping our role in a ministry? Would we free up our Wednesday night before we free up our Sunday morning? It breaks my heart when these conversations point to the body of Christ as the issue. Church is to be a family community. It should have a positive impact and innumerable benefits on your personal faith and your family because Christ said he would build his church. If the church is what Jesus says it is, then your family is better off plugged into the church by faith than into anything else. And I believe that. And that's why I shared my personal testimony at the start of this message. That was my experience. We're going to talk more about this next week. This is a two-part sermon series, and even that is not enough, and I'm sure you can appreciate that. But let me leave you with a final thought for consideration. And then we're going to go eat in the cafe some goulash. My son leaned over and said, what's goulash? We don't use that term in our home, so I don't know what he thought it was. Uh, the discussion questions, I reference those. This is the last discussion question in the uh, life group outline content. Please consider discussing this further with somebody in your church family. But I, I quoted this verse just a couple weeks back. Maybe it was even last week. Joshua 24, 15. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What if this conversation turned into, rather than unplugging from the local church because I'm too busy, it's taking up too much time, and I need that time for my family, what if instead of unplugging from the local church to try and engage more with our family, what if we engaged our family together with us more in the local church. What, what if dads and sons parked the cars on Sunday? What if mothers and daughters brought their tools down to work on some property development stuff together on the property? What if, what if families set up the tables for a cafe today together? What if we serve together and we so engaged in this value of service as a family, instead of turning to my daughter on a Wednesday night and saying, daddy's got to go to another meeting, what if I came up with more ways, and that onus is put on me, I'm going to have to get creative there, where I could take my family with me to serve in the church and the community? Because I just got done telling you for the first 10 minutes of the sermon what incredible impact that had on all aspects of my life. Dad taking me to prayer meeting with a bunch of old men in the basement of the church. And I can still smell what the basement of that church smelled like. But that was a moment for me. 
the first time I prayed out loud in front of grown men. I'll never forget it. My dad could easily said, you know what, it's Wednesday night. I got to watch my son. Maybe I can just say no to prayer meeting and we'll stay home because it's probably not age appropriate to him. And he decided, no, I'm going to bring him anyway. And I'm really glad he did. Okay, three minutes to 12. I'm hungry. Are you hungry? Let's end in prayer. The discussion questions are there. Take this conversation further. I hope you can appreciate this is a big discussion that you need to have with your family. So let's pray as we close together. God, I want to thank you so much that we get to have this conversation. God, this is a real tension that so many of our families experience, including my own. Would you give us wisdom? Would you give me wisdom in how to be involved in your kingdom as a family instead of leaving the family at home to do ministry? Would you, would you give us some creativity on those points? God, if there are areas of our ministry that we need to reconsider and redesign so that families can serve together, would you give us some incredible wisdom in that direction, God? Thank you for a church that feels like a family, that we care for one another, that we love one another, that we keep an eye out for one another on Sundays and we check in. We have an idea of what's going on in each other's lives. We hold each other accountable. We talk about what really matters together. God, thank you for the conversations we're going to get to have up in the cafe. Thank you for the Honduras missions team and for their first meeting that's going to happen right now. God, thank you for the offering. Thank you for the men's ministry that took place there yesterday. God, in all these things, we want to say that you are first in our life. God, help us to know how better to exemplify that in and through our families. Thank you for these things, God. In Jesus' name, amen.